Hey everybody and welcome back to another edition of the Open Forum podcast. Today we have with us Senator for Queensland, uh, Queensland Malcolm Roberts. Uh, Malcolm Roberts has a background in engineering uh, with an MBA in business from the University of Chicago, works as a coal miner, also has his own podcast and a radio show. Malcolm, that's a very brief sort of 30 seconds into who you are, the bare bones. Can you maybe take two minutes to tell the listeners a little bit about who you are and then we're just going to dive on in? Sure. Sonny, and first of all, thank you very much for having me as a guest. And, uh, and, and I really acknowledge your independent uh, podcast because this is the way we get freedom back in our country and around the world. The, the, the legacy media, as I call them, the anti-social media, um, just failing us. So I was born in 1955 to a Welsh father and an Australian mother uh, when they were living in India. So I was born in India along with my brother and sister a couple of years later. Uh, I was educated, started my education uh, at the hands of Italian nuns who were working with what they call them, expats in India. And I was taught under the Montessori philosophy of education, which I so appreciative of. Um, then we came to Australia when I was seven, I think seven or eight. Um, and and I, I guess what I learned in India uh, and, and, and traveling to Australia where my mother's, mother's family was and, and, my, and traveling to Wales and Britain where my father's family were every few years was that um, it doesn't matter what the, what, what the you, you just treat everyone at face value. And you just and, and you can get on with people and the majority of people are wonderful. I had a mother and father who taught me that the truth is extremely important, but they love me, which was which was very encouraging. And um, and they would take me to meet different people. And I would so it didn't matter what what shape the person was, how high, tall, fat, skinny, color of skin, color of eyes. It didn't matter because they're all human. And, and that's something I really, really value. And then during the during the summer holidays in, in university, I've worked underground in the mines. And that's when I realized that was a practical application of what was being taught at university that really mattered. And so after university graduating, I graduated with an honors degree and everyone else went into an, an office job, an engineering job. I worked down into the coal mines and worked at the coal face for about three years. And then I was very lucky to be able to get in touch with a large American company. And I worked in the States. I moved around there again. The, the, <laughs> the movement is, is a key theme in my life. I move, move, move. Um, and I worked in six different states. I've since then worked in eight different states. Um, I was on a rigorous training program. So I had a lot of experiences and it crammed into a short period. Then I worked for another company that was very switched on, but completely different. It was also coal mining. Came back to Australia, got, worked as an in engineer for a little while, but I've never been interested in working as an engineer. I find that that's just not my interest. Um, I like the rigor, the discipline of engineering, logical thinking, the process approach, but uh, but I don't like sitting there being doing calculations. I I love the people aspect, so I got my statutory qualifications to manage mines, and then I was promoted very quickly uh, for my age, and I was a mine manager for um, when by the time I was 28, uh, so I was responsible for for adult lives, uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, um, and and I loved it. And I, and I love the uh, the dealing with unions, dealing with corporate office, dealing with miners, just love the variety. Um, 
And then I got tired of the bean counters calling the shots, not knowing really what was what was going on. And so I thought the only way to beat them is to join them. So I did my MBA, met my wife, did, went back to America to do my MBA, met my wife there, was um, headhunted back to Australia, led the, the, the establishment of one of the most complex and challenging engineering projects in the world at the time for underground coal mining. We did it. I was brought back, especially because I had my, my ideas on how to manage and lead people are completely different from most people. Um, they're, they're much more modern. And uh, we, we had a hell of a challenge there, but we, we had some enormous uh, successes and achievements. Um, after about three years, I realized <laughs> that I, if I didn't um, change my ways, I would be, uh, leaving the company for sure because I clashed with a very ego-driven American who was president of the company. And so uh, I'm not going to change my ways. So I left form a management consulting company. We, it was just my wife and I, really. We hired other people at times, but I worked overseas in Australia, around the, around the country, different industries, um, enjoyed that. And then I started getting into the climate. Uh, I, as, as, a, as an engineering student, I was taught the composition of atmospheric gases. And so I knew the properties of carbon dioxide, which is a trace gas. There's hardly any of it in the atmosphere. And all of a sudden we were being told that the climate was going to be changed, ruined. The earth was going to be fried due to the carbon dioxide from human activity. And I thought, this is bloody crazy. And so I started doing the research. And at first it was, you know, who am I? Little old me to challenge these thousands of scientists and thousands Across of politicians. Yeah. Yeah. And and I, but it just didn't sit easy with me. So I kept, kept studying it and I realized it was crap. And then I realized, uh, then I started going down ch chasing who was driving the crap. And then I learned the UN was driving it. It was all fabricated. And then I learned who was pushing the UN, who'd been controlling the UN, who formed the UN and why, why they formed it. And so then I was started. And then, then I, I, I've always been interested in politics, but not in being a part of it and uh, just in it being an educated voter. And then I started interacting with politicians, holding them accountable. And I gave them the science thinking naively that if I peddle the science to them, they will change. No. So then I started showing them the corruption, thinking they'd certainly be alarmed by that. No, didn't miss a beat. And then I started peddling the motivation. No, still not interested. Um, and I visited MPs in Parliament. I had so many people who agreed with me, but they wouldn't speak up. A couple of them would, but they got slammed. So then... Um, I was speaking about this climate rot and a very famous uh, geologist and a wonderful man, highly intelligent. He was due to go into a, a, a forum in regional Queensland, this, one of the states in Australia, and, and his mother got sick, so he couldn't make it. So the politician who was leading that forum, Pauline Hanson, asked him for a replacement. He nominated me and I spoke and she was uh, impressed and she said later on just not long after that the following year she said would I ask me to stand with her in the election for the senate and I got in and uh, and and I, Pauline Hanson is just such an amazing woman highly intelligent but more importantly courageous strong has incredible integrity uh, doesn't run away from anything uh, fronts up to everything and uh, and she and I work very well we're similar um, and and she and I have done quite a few things in the Senate that have, that have drawn attention. Now our party's starting to grow. And of course, we've taken on the COVID challenge. So I'm really after the, the climate scam. I've, we've got them lined up now. I can talk about that later. But the COVID has distracted us because that's, 
that's an even more dangerous scam. It's the one at the moment scam. that's potentially taking freedoms or not potentially, it's the one at the moment that has taken away freedoms. It's given carte blanche to the politicians on the whole across the globe to remove freedoms from people. So it's understandable as to why that would uh, take the eye of you guys, uh, so to speak. And, and um, it, I, I think that's a, a good place to start. Um, you've already mentioned that with uh, Pauline Hansen uh, over at the One Nation Party, uh, she's someone who's not afraid of a challenge and, and uh, doesn't back down. And you're someone who's also not afraid to speak out and say your piece if you think that something's not right, which is admirable and something that we should expect from our politicians and something that we should expect, especially from opposition parties. However, what we've seen in the UK, uh, what we've seen also in Dutch Parliament, what we've seen in, I think, Australia as well, is the main opposition parties aren't holding those in power accountable for what's happened. So I think the first place I want to start is, what was it that uh, about the COVID policies that made you guys come forward and speak out about this? And um, how is it that Australia found itself in one of the most authoritarian rules in the last two years, three years almost? When, uh, before COVID arrived in Australia, Sunny, we saw pictures on nightly, almost continually on TV, showing purported, purportedly showing tens of thousands of people dying in Italy, France, Spain, China, all over the world. This thing was coming to get you. You've got to be careful. Um, and so when we had our first single day session in Parliament on, I remember this date for a long time, Monday, the 23rd of April. And then we had a second single day session on Wednesday, April the 8th, 2020 virus had just arrived and we had this emergency session and you could only have one day because we couldn't afford the risk of mixing with each other and all this and all the, all the conditions, all hyped up. But we didn't know that at the time. We were just fed this stuff from overseas. And so we thought this was serious. But I said to the government, when we, we passed their first uh, support packages for the lockdowns, then we passed their second support in, in April. And I said, look, we don't have the facts. But if what we're seeing overseas is true, and we have to go by that, that's the best we've got at the moment, then this is a highly uncertainty. There's a high degree of uncertainty. So we have to go on the side of caution. So we'll give you an open check. Away you go, get on with the job. You're elected. We don't agree with you all the time, but you're elected, so away you go. But we want the data. We want a plan, a proper plan for managing and what you're going to be doing about it. We want you to, and then we will hold you accountable. We also want you to have a look at the Monash University trials for in, in vitro trials for ivermectin. They're, they're very promising. And we also want you to look at Taiwan because they've done a good job of testing, tracing and quarantine, not locking up everyone, locking, uh, isolating the people who are vulnerable and the people who are sick. And um, so I told them way back at the start, that was what was needed. Um, and then I gave them a couple of months breathing space. There are a lot of things for people to digest. They also created a very strong atmosphere. You disagree with us and you're a nut job. So we had to be very careful how we spoke because a to a politician, the ability to speak freely is extremely important and that hinges on credibility. So all the guns were trained on suppressing people, either directly or on, um, how can you say it? Uh, just through the herd effect, you know, 
don't you dare speak out about this. So we're very careful. Almost. So, yeah, self-censorship, almost peer pressure, a sense of, yeah, uh, condemnation if you did speak up. So we were very careful. It was very early on that things just didn't seem to be consistent, but it was too early to frame a case. And and then I started writing letters to the Prime Minister, the Premier of the State of Queensland. Um, and then we started seeing the absurdities, the inconsistencies, the and, and the lack of data from, from the politicians, almost complete lack of data. Um, we saw then started seeing lies as they start making mistakes. We saw the absurdities, the contradictions, uh, contradictions between the states, contradictions between the states and the federal government, contradictions within a state over just a week. They're doing crazy stuff. So we started asking questions. And then after, after uh, and not getting answers. And, and then we really started to wake up when we started using, they, they basically shut down parliament. So we didn't have access to it, our usual uh, ways of, of doing things, our usual processes. But then we had Senate estimates in uh, March of 2021. And I asked for a simple little thing called the data. I, I said to the chief medical officer, Senate estimates is where the bureaucrats come, the, the ministers come and they sit before us uh, as senators and we ask them questions. And I said, what I want from you is I want the data on the virus's transmissibility and severity. And I want it not only in absolute terms, but I want it in, in the terms relative to past serious flus. And they gave, me, they gave me a diagram. It was an excellent diagram, Sonny. And it showed that the COVID virus severity was low to moderate, not severe, low to moderate. And then it was obvious by that time that it hit different, eight, different, different groups in a different way. The people who are highly vulnerable with it, those who had comorbidities, those who had immune system compromised, those who were old, those who were obese, those who were diabetic, people who had problems with their immune system. And, uh, and so that meant that it should be a stratified plan. You don't lock down everyone. And then the cracks started appearing. Oh, and that's right. They also showed us on that graph that the severity of COVID was less than some past flus. And so we're going, well, hang on, what's going on here? And then I also noticed that they had no, took no, in, no recognition of Taiwan. I noticed that Taiwan was being fr frozen out by the UN, by China um, and excluded. And yet Taiwan had done by far the best job of managing the virus. They truly managed it. Then they, they criticized Sweden for, for not locking down. And Sweden now emerged as, as probably one of the best, uh, best in the world, along with Taiwan. And so there were so many things that just bubbled up, contradictions, hypocrisies, um, uh, absurdities that, that we then started speaking up. And then they did the fatal thing for me. They started to mandate injections. And we started already questioning the, the, uh, the, the um, lockdowns, which were disastrous, really hurting people. Uh, but then they started mandating injections and then we really started getting into it. And they in, in, introduced the injections with with no testing, but that's another story. So that's that's the story of what how I awoke and uh, took a gradual period. But um, now we, we can see that this is this has not only been. At first, people were saying this is a pandemic, and I disagreed. Uh, I didn't see any evidence of that. But now it's abundantly clear that this is in fact planned. It's been orchestrated. But the other thing is that. Uh, you know, it's, it's like, have you read the books by Robert F. Kennedy, the real yes. Anthony Fauci? Yeah, absolutely. He showed Fantastic. about the simulations, masterly work. 
um, and 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 the way things are controlled. And then we started seeing, oh, when I first got into the Senate in 2016, I immediately, first speech, condemned the United Nations and said, we need to get out. So I'd already done my homework from the climate rule. I knew that they were a political organization hell bent on global governance rather than on, on, on helping people. They were hurting people, killing people. Uh, so I already was awake to the UN with, and I was somewhat awake to the World Economic Forum. COVID brought all of that to, to life. And I realized that uh, we had a hell of a fight in our hands. And then we started seeing things like the digital identity bill being proposed. Uh, and I then it all fell into place. So this is just a scam. There is no pandemic. There's no pandemic of deaths. Every country in the world, there's, there's no startling increase in deaths at all. Sweden, which had no lockdowns, had a slight increase in deaths. But now what we've realized is they were the elderly who were pulled forward, the weak and vulnerable. Their deaths may, may have been two or three months early or six months early, but now they've seen a negative death rate. And so there's nothing unusual anywhere in the world. America, uh, the world itself, just, just flat and in terms of... There's no pandemic. There is no pandemic at all. No, it stayed quite, um, quite stable. There was no massive spike that you would expect from... As you yeah. said right at the beginning, these videos that we were shown coming out of China of people convulsing and falling down in the street or uh, these videos of people being barred up as they are now in Shanghai, um, which is you know, a whole nother kettle of fish. But if we um, come back down to what's occurred in the last couple of years, Australia has found itself in a pretty precarious situation with regards to freedoms that were no longer freedoms. They were privileges that were granted to people who played by the rules of the government. Uh, if we put it that way, you were allowed to do certain things. If you were going to get vaccinated, you were allowed to keep your job. You were allowed to go out and uh, spend more than an hour outside. How has that sort of impacted um, one the situation in Australia and two, the feelings at, at ground level of the populace, how, how have they welcomed or not the, the infringement on their freedoms? That varies, but overall they've completely, um, they completely disdain it. They detest what's going on and people are starting to wake up Um the, for those that might not be familiar, can you tell us some of the uh, restrictions that have been placed? I know they're now slowly being lifted, um, but what, what were some of the worst sort of measures that you guys had at times? The restrictions varied from things as, as um, simple, possibly benign as um, face masks. Now, there's no evidence that these face masks work. There is lots of evidence that says these face masks don't work. And I realized very early on, almost from the start, that that was about conditioning. Uh, we saw early contradictions right there, Sonny, because we had Anthony Fauci. Our own, our own uh, state and federal bureaucrats were saying, oh, no, don't worry. They couldn't get any masks because they, they hadn't planned for it properly. Um, and so when, when they couldn't get masks and people started complaining we need masks, they said... No, 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 no. Masks, masks are not useful anyway. Don't worry about it. And then as soon as the mask supply started being ramped up, they said, you must wear masks. And then you'll be fined if you don't wear masks. And, and I thought, this is complete rubbish. And, and that's, that's when I really started waking up. 
Uh, so some of the other restrictions was the state of Victoria said you couldn't travel more than five kilometres and you could only travel to get food. Basically, that was it. Uh, and there's severe repercussions if you if you breach that. You couldn't travel on jets, you, on, on aircraft. Uh, you're very restricted into how far you could travel, what you could travel for. Work was shut down. And I, I'm thinking, hang on a minute. Taiwan, South Korea, which, which had a far better record in the early days of the virus and subsequently um, than we did, they didn't lock down. But what they did was they had testing, tracing, quarantining. So people came to work. They were tested with a thermometer, infrared thermometer. If they were normal temperature or cool, go to work. If they were warm, go and get a, go and get a COVID test. And if you're COVID, go home and isolate. That's all. Um, and, and so they continued work. We didn't. And, and Taiwan, just to digress for a minute, Taiwan had a fa fabulous testing, tracing, quarantining. In the first year, roughly sunny, they have, a, that's why another reason I use Taiwan is because they have a population of 24 million and we have 25. Theirs is crammed into a popular, into a tiny area that's half the size of little Tasmania and our smallest state. Jeez. So, so that's high population density. They're close to China. They didn't shut their borders. They continued continued in, inward and outward um, movement of people. And at the same time, we locked down severely, as I just said, uh, severe fines on people, people thrown out of work, small businesses collapsing, mandates thrown on people. And so we had, in the first year, we had about similar population, excuse me, much lower risk in Australia. We had about a thousand deaths. They had seven seven deaths that was it and then they had a large breakdown in their international quarantining that caused them to have a quick breakout but they quickly brought that under control again and what i realized very early on was that the management of this virus in this country has been completely mismanaged catastrophically mismanaged it really hurts people they've killed people by their mismanagement um, they've certainly destroyed the economy Taiwan just kept going as a natural as a natural come, even though America basically shut down, Europe shut down, um, China partially shut down. But Taiwan didn't miss a beat. Their economy went down 0.6 of a percent. Our economy was crucified, just shattered. And, and they had a far better result. So that that's. So there's some of the restrictions. And then they brought in injection mandates. I don't call them vaccines. They're not vaccines. They're experimental gene therapy treatments. So I won't dignify them with the name of vaccines. They don't provide immunity. Vaccine provides immunity. These do not. Vaccine has lasting immunity. These things have efficacy that falls off as little as, as seven days, but certainly around two months, three months, the efficacy falls off. Um, and so what we saw was this complete mismanagement, uh, locking up of the people, terrible performance, but our, country, our, our government saying we've got the best performance in the world, another lie. So when they brought in the facts, the injection mandates, they also wanted to bring in injection passports, vaccine passports, as they call them. Well, I call them digital uh, vaccine prisons because they restricted you. Uh, we also noticed exactly what you said. They withdrew. You, you said they gave us, they allowed us to do things. Well, I'm sorry, but that's not the right word. The word is they gave us permission to do things. They didn't allow us. They took away basic human rights. They took away basic freedoms and people didn't whinge. Some of them grumbled. We spoke out about it, but some, 
no. And they just swallowed that so easily. And then we had to, we had to do beg like teenagers, beg like dogs, literally going and training. If you guys get injected up to 70%, the initial one was 70%. Once we get 70%, we'll turn you loose. Then it was 80% would turn you loose. Then it was 90% would turn you loose. Then it was 95% turn you loose. I don't believe the figures. I don't believe anything like 95% of being injected. Um, and a lot of people now saying, screw you on your boosters. I'm not even coming near them. But anyway, what 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 happened was that the, we've got a, uh, a federal system of, of, uh, of government in this country. We have sovereign independent states like Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria, Tasmania. Um, and we have a central government. Now, the central government is meant to do very, very little. And it would be a far better country if that's what the federal government did. But the federal government's put its nose into everything. In our constitution, in section 51, clause 23A, it says you cannot man, you cannot conscript people in terms of medication. It's, they had a very narrow interpretation of that. But nonetheless, the federal government didn't try to conscript people. So what it did was it, it insisted the state governments do it very early on the prime minister formed with the premiers of the states what's called a national cabinet. It's a bogus thing. It's not constitutional. Um, it has no force of law, uh, but the prime minister did that. I think he did that so that he could manipulate the, the state governments. I think they did that so they could work together manipulating the people. And I honestly believe that. And, and, they, and I think he did it because if it failed, then he'd be able to blame the premiers. But if it succeeded, he'd say, I, I'm leading the national cabinet. So I succeeded. That's the way this this bastard of a prime minister we have. He's a complete liar. Um, and, and, and so what happened was the federal government bought, I'll just, just explain how this happened. So we've got states making individuals, should be making individual sovereign decisions. And, and on, on the, uh, the federal government cannot mandate vaccines, in, in injections. So the prime minister bought 280 million doses of these injections. And we've only got 25 million people. We've only got probably 20 million people who are who are up up for injection, and because some of them are kids, now they're wanting to subtly and slyly and dishonestly inject kids from six months to four years, which is inhuman. This thing is an experimental gene gene therapy treatment. The health minister himself, who who I'll happily talk about later, because he's a graduate from the World Economic Forum and a former strategic director for the World Economic Forum. Greg Hunt is his name. He's complicit in the climate scam. He's complicit in covering up the distortion of our data from our Bureau of Meteorology on temperatures. So he's sorry, he's not complicit. He's enabled that to continue. Um, anyway, the, the, the health minister himself has said that these vax, the world is engaged in the largest clinical vaccination trial. If it's a trial, you cannot force people to take it. That is just inhuman. To force it on kids six months old that's just barbaric. Anyway, the government bought 280 million doses. That's enough for about 11 per, per head at, at least. Mm. Then they tell us these have got a shelf life. So and then they tell us they have to come up with a new new vaccine for, um, for the new var variants. Yeah. Yeah, you know, so what are they going to do with 280 million doses? They can't change them. So anyway, that's one thing. The federal government bought them. The federal government gave them to the states. So at any time, the federal government could say to a state that was mandating, then, then they got the states to mandate it. Um, and, and then the states put pressure on employers to mandate it. And now, at any time, the federal government should have said, if you mandate it, 
we will cut them off. But the federal government was actually using the state to mandate. The federal government indemnified the states. The, our, our party leader, Senator Pauline Hanson, I introduced a bill for her in Parliament, which would have which would have um, outlawed discrimination based on injections. Would have ended the mandates. The federal government opposed that. The federal government opposed us even sending it to a committee to have a, get let the people have a say on this. So. The state, uh, the state premiers say that the vaccine mandates are in line with the national cabinet, which the prime minister leads. The, the state, the federal health department provides the health data that enables the states to, to do these injections. So you can see it's just lie upon lie upon lie. And then the prime minister has repeatedly stated a blatant lie when he said repeatedly in this country that Australia does not have vaccine mandates. Complete fabrication complete distortion um and it's egregious and then, when you see that, that yes you can do that in front of the population and everyone just nods and smiles and goes yeah, what? he's right we don't we, no we don't no 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 that they it's not that bad we're not that silly the population is saying that's wrong they're, they're calling him a liar blatantly but they don't do anything about it they don't they don't get they don't call their local mp they don't visit their local mp they don't they don't um uh, they don't write letters to the local MP. They just accept it. And that's what, and, and then, you know, we started standing up and more and more people stood up. But see, what happens, Sonny, is you get someone to do something like, uh, well, to, to explain where I'm going, I've identified about five different responses to the vaccines. One run response is vaccine compliant. Yeah, stick it in me, quick, I need it. Okay, I, I respect you. I think I don't agree with your choice to the science, but but that's your choice. You you do it. Okay. The next one is vaccine reluctant. Uh, I don't know. We've heard lots of stories about these vaccines. I'm not too uh, happy about it, but um, uh, now you're taking my job away from me. Uh, okay. I've got to feed my kids. Now that's inhuman, but then they'll say, okay, I'll do it. That's inhuman to say that you either take an experimental gene therapy treatment against your wishes to enable your kids to feed or your kids starve. That's just, you wouldn't do that to a dog. You wouldn't do that to an animal. Then the third one is vaccine hesitant. You know, I've heard so many stories about this. We haven't got the trials. Um, they haven't been tested properly. They've hardly been tested at all. Um, yeah, I, I hesitate. And then the next group is vaccine, what I call vaccine resistant. No, I'm not going to get this until I see five years down the road and see what effects have happened. And then we get the last group, which on the COVID injections, this is me, vaccine opponents. I know that there's no data on this. I know that there is there is serious side effects. I know that people are dying in their thousands. Um, I know that they're being covered up. So no, not for me. So you've got that full range, that full gamut. But some of the people who are reluctant to have it, it's an amazing thing. It's wonderful that they will go to protest and, and they will protest, even though they've been injected, they will go to protest and stand up against the mandating. They say it should be a free choice. They're really opposed to the mandating. Even the people who have voluntarily taken it and, and happily taken it, they're saying the mandates are wrong, but still the government rolls on. But nonetheless, it becomes a very sensitive topic because we know they're killing people. We know they're severely injuring people by the thousands. How do you tell people, especially those who've taken it voluntarily, that you've got stuff in you that is killing people? 
So you've got to be very empathetic, got to be very respectful towards that. That's a very difficult thing to talk about in public, but we have to talk about it because it's so important to be open because the people who are afraid of talking about it will die potentially unless we start talking about it and developing a cure for these these inject these injections. You know what I mean? There's a lot of sensitive topics. One of the things that while a lot of people have followed like sheep, I am really impressed with people who can see through it and say coercion is not the way to do it. And then then people are aware of the fact that ivermectin is proven 3.74 billion doses around the world over the last 40 years or so. Uh, it's proven as safe. It's proven now in, in trials and also in the real world in, in America, in Europe, in South America, in, in India. It's proven highly effective against COVID. The vaccines, if you want to call them that, the vaccines, um, I asked the chief medical officer and the head of the Therapeutic Goods Administration, which approved the vac provisionally approved the vaccines, um, that were they 100% safe? No. Uh, do they stop transmission? No. Do they stop you cat getting the getting the virus? No. How many doses will you we, will we need? We don't know. I mean, what the hell do you know? And you're pushing this on people, and you're forcing it on people, and, and then so so these are the kinds of things that all build up and and lead. Now people are saying so. Early days, they they came down hard on people who did raise the word ivermectin. I talked about ivermectin. I've, I've taken it in the past for a condition I picked up in India and it fixed me overnight. Um, no side effects. Uh, we know that, uh, that ivermectin has very, very few side effects and they're very mild. Uh, most people don't have any side effects. We know now, but in the early days, people dared raise ivermectin. In my first speech in the Senate on this on the 23rd of March, 2020, I raised it. And next thing I got a letter from the Therapeutic Goods Administration quoting acts. It was a very threatening letter. letter quoting parts of the act which says you cannot advertise drugs that aren't approved they withdrew the approval for doctors to treat to treat people with ivermectin treat people with covid using ivermectin and they threatened me and two and a half three and a half page letter and i recognized that as bullying so the only way to deal with a bully son is to get in their face and so i wrote back to them saying how dare you interfere with the normal communication of a duly elected federal parliamentarian representing his people. And the second thing is the federal government by withdrawing ivermectin has got blood on its hands. And instead of shutting me down, what they did was they realized and they, they then wrote a reply back to me. Thank you for your letter. So that's the way to deal with these bullies. But when you're threatened on social media with being shut down, if you raise the word ivermectin and twice I was removed from Facebook for a week, uh, sorry, sorry, from YouTube, YouTube. for a week, yeah. we, we had, uh, we had, we had threats from Facebook that we would be removed. You've got to keep that intact. So what we've had to do is walk a very fine line. So when I get on a show like this, I normally ask, is it okay to mention ivermectin? But I guess it was fine with you because you're an independent for, podcaster. Yeah, for me, it's fine. I mean, I've already had a, a strike off of YouTube uh, for one of my videos, and I'm sure there will be more in the future. So I, I don't see YouTube as being there. The, the mainstay for, for this podcast. But uh, no, actually your um, video that you made with regards to ivermectin and saying that there's a safe and effective treatment, et cetera, et cetera, is actually the first uh, post on the Instagram page for, for this podcast. Um, and that's how I got to know you. Yeah. Uh, how I got to know about you rather uh, way back when. 
But um, what you're saying there about ivermectin and the fact that we have 40 years of safety data is fantastic. The fact that we also know that continual use of this drug is also accepted well by our bodies. That's something that we know nothing about for the COVID-19 injections. Now, um, I have uh, a background in physiology as well. uh, And we learned a lot about the drug production, vaccine production cycle, what's meant to happen and why it's meant to happen. So you don't have things like thalidomide poking its head up again. So there were many, many safety protocols brought in uh, to prevent any of these long-term serious effects popping up further down the line so that we have an idea of what's going to happen with these drugs. Now, we just don't have that with the injections. But with something as safe and effective as ivermectin, it's on the the WHO's 100 most essential medicines. This is how important it is. It's won a Nobel Prize for its effects as an anti-parasitic drug. It has such a phenomenal response Uh, in both treatment and prophylaxis for COVID-19, it's unfathomable that it's been shut down so hard, like you've said, that any mention of it, I think a year ago, and you were completely booted off of everything. Slowly but surely, people are being allowed to speak about it a little bit now and then. Um, But there have been massive organized slander campaigns by the FDA, uh, by Anthony Fauci at the NIAID, where you have emails going back and forth between them of, hey, ivermectin's come out with Joe Rogan, we need to get rid of it any way we can, the horse pace debacle uh, and and the rest of it. But I want to come back to something that you said earlier about the face masks and social conditioning. Part of Uh, what was done with the vaccine mandate, the vaccine passport system, was that you then had to show a QR code for everywhere that you went. Now, this is also a little bit of social conditioning. And I think that that um, wraps well into this digital ID bill that was being proposed in the sense that slowly but surely, you whittle people's will down by isolating them and making them follow these arbitrary rules such as face masks and showing this QR code into every store that you go into, whether you want to go pick up your groceries or whether you want to go buy some new cleats to go play football, whatever it might be. These uh, elements were continually shoved in your face. It was on every advertising campaign i think in the us uh, there was more money spent by pharmaceutical advertisements in the last year than anything else uh, in the uk wherever you went it was hands face space or um something about getting the jab or what have you where i go to work in amsterdam uh it's one of the biggest uh, convention centers where i have to park up everything around it is about getting your vaccine line up here to get your vaccine hey you don't even have to make an appointment come on through there's all of this along with the qr code how does this social conditioning in your eyes wrap around onto that digital id bill and what is the digital uh, digital id bill as well okay um there's a lot of of meat in that question um very early on in the senate it might have been for my first speech um, I said that I'm very proudly and very fiercely pro-human. And I said that because one of the, the narratives going around the world that the United Nations is pushing, the Club of Rome is pushing, a lot of the globalist institutions are pushing, Al Gore was pushing, an inconvenient truth was pushing, 
World Wildlife Fund is pushing, Greenpeace is pushing. It is orchestrated, it's coordinated. One of the catch cries is humans are evil. Humans are greedy, rapacious, uncaring, irresponsible. They just don't give a damn. But let me tell you, Sonny, I'm here from the government and I will protect you from yourself and I'll protect you from those others. And so it's, it's even got to the point where I watched An Inconvenient Truth. And the first time I watched it, I, I missed the first 30, 30 minutes, 20, 30 minutes. That's where they, and, and, and An Inconvenient Truth was produced by Paramount Movie Studios in America. It's, and, and we all know what Hollywood stock and trade is. Hollywood stock and trade is using emotions to connect with an audience and lead an audience. And, and that's what any good author does, any good playwright does. You know, so I'm not criticizing that. That's the way we connect with people. Wonderful. But Hollywood was using it to manipulate people. And they did that in the Second World War. They've done it time and time again. Most of the, many of the studios are owned by the globalists. They're used as a propaganda tool. So An Inconvenient Truth talks in the, in the first bit about uh, needing to care and how the planet's going to hell and all the rest of it. And then at the end, by the end, when they show how, how badly, badly deteriorating the planet is, they appeal to our sense of care and say, because you care, we know you'll help us fix it. Stop using cars, stop eating beef. So I'm thinking, hang on a minute. You started by telling me we don't care. And now you're telling us because we care, we'll work with you. So the first thing is to recognize that humans care. But the way they've twisted it, there, there are so many things that I can talk about here. The way they've twisted it, you will wear a mask. You will get an injection. You will lock yourself down. You'll deprive your kids because granny needs to be protected. You want your kids to see granny and granny. We all know how much granny and granddad love to see their grandkids. You want the kids to see granny? Get them injected. Get injected yourself. And by the way, get granny injected. Forget about the data. Forget about the data altogether. Just because you care, you'll get them. Then it becomes a matter of if you're not injected, you don't care. And they do the same. If you don't believe in this global warming, you don't care about the environment. Complete rubbish in both of them. The second one, and this is this is more powerful. So they appeal to our sense of care while doing everything they can to not care for us. They, they appeal, secondly, to our need for belonging. Now, I don't know how big you are, but I'm only a little guy. But even the biggest and strongest human is puny next to a saber-toothed tiger or even a today's tiger. So we humans had to develop some other way of protecting our families and protecting our offspring so that we could propagate the species. Well, we developed a very strong neocortex, very powerful, logical uh, speech. No one else can do this apart from limited forms of speech in dolphins and some animals. But we developed another thing too. We developed social skills. So we could get 10 of us and we could protect our families from the saber-toothed tiger. We could possibly even go hunt a saber-toothed tiger and go looking for the damn thing and hunt it and kill it and eat it. All because we had the social skills, we had that sense of belonging. But Sonny, if you do anything that goes against our little family, our little clan, our little tribe, that makes us vulnerable, you don't fulfill your duties, you're out of here. You, because we can't afford to keep you. You're too much of a weak link in the chain. So that meant the sense of belonging was very, very strong. Now, the fact is that you are here only because someone cared about you. 
I don't care what kind of childhood you had, someone cared about you. Because humans, when we're born, look, when, when a baby horse gets born a foal, it, it's sort of quivering for a couple of minutes, then it's up on its feet. And within a half an hour, it's galloping, cantering. Humans, we are completely vulnerable for years. We can't look after ourselves. So there's that sense of care. Now, you're here because someone cared for you in the past. That means they care. They've got, let's call it a gene. I don't know if there's such a thing as a gene for caring, but you've got the, the instinct to care in you because someone they're in your genes. The same with belonging. It's in your genes. So another thing you can do to really, really scare people and terrify them is threaten them with exclusion. And they do that subtly. They do that directly at times. You don't care. Um, you're, 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 uh, you're, you you haven't got your vaccine, so you can't comply with the mandate. So you're out of here. You're not allowed to do certain things. And to humans, that's terrible. We don't. We we have to belong. And the third thing is that while we have a very strong and powerful neocortex and logical, we still have we still instinctively re return to the very primitive core of our brain, and that core of the brain enables us to react far more quickly than logically. If, if, if I can explain, say, see that big kitten over there? That's a long way away. Hell, it must be very big kitten. Hell, it's an adult. Hell, it's got stripes on it. It's a bloody tiger. Well, you're eaten by then. So you just say, look at that cat and take off. So that's the fear. And we, we have that instinctive response to fight, fight, flight, or freeze. And so their instinctive responses and it doesn't matter what the neocortex says we just do what the, what the, what our amygdala tells us and we just react so what they do then is they pump us full of fear they censor the truth so we can't think logically they give us enormous amounts of propaganda which repeat the lies and so because you care because you want to belong because you need to belong and because you've been fed crap and because you're terrified your, your, logic, your logic just goes out the window and you just comply. So, um, so that's basically how they've done it. But they haven't done it with, with guns and bullets and tanks because we can see if you point a gun at me, you're controlling me. But if you feed me crap and keep me scared, people don't know. And so what, what happens is it's very, very much more subtle. And so people don't know they've been fooled unless they're watching closely and they're really thinking. So it, it takes a lot to scare me. So, I, you know, we could see through it, but you see what I'm getting at? It's a comprehensive approach and the mask doesn't do anything, but it does it, except it doesn't do anything beneficial. It does enormous damage, but the mask there over the face, every time you see someone in the street wearing a mask, you get, Oh my God, the virus. Oh my, I must be scared. And so they're reminding us and they're also reminding us of the control. I must wear my mask, even though I know it's ineffective because I'll get excluded if I don't. I'll get fined if I don't. I'll be seen as a pariah if I don't. So there are all the social stigmas about doing that kind of stuff. So it's very much, there are two words that, that really drive this whole thing, money and control. Pfizer is going to make around $43.5 billion revenue this year, 43.5. And now that's, that's incredible. And, and then the other thing is control. They're going to force that injection in you through the injection mandates. They'll stop you traveling, stop you going overseas. Literally, in this country, you cannot go overseas. We asked the chief medical officer, two, two of the uh, senators, myself and Jared Rennick, asked the chief medical officer why we can't go overseas. 
They said, because we, his immediate response was, because we need to protect people in other countries, people with the virus. And I said to him, can you tell me how Omicron got into this country? Because the answer is an injected person brought it in with them from overseas. And now they're telling us, and then he said, um, well, we've got to fulfill our international obligations. Crap. Is that, you look after ourselves. Is that proven that it came from uh, an injected traveller from abroad? Well, yes, it, it, is, it is proven because the only people allowed into the country were injected and it definitely came in from overseas. So, mm. so it's definitely the case. And, and they freely admit, you know, he was, he was the person who admitted to me when I asked questions very early on in the piece, will it, will it stop transmission, to stop you getting it? No, no, no. So the, the, the thing is, that they're full of contradictions and they're full of absurdities and they're full of dishonesty and they're full of deceit. So I mentioned two words. It's all about control because take away ivermectin and there's no alternative but the, but the experimental gene therapy treatments. And then you take away freedoms and impose permissions and restrictions. And then you've got no alternative to life but to take an injection. So it's, it's just completely wrong. This is barbaric stuff we're talking about. This is inhuman behavior we're talking about here. This is genocide. Anthony Fauci, Robert, you've read Robert F. Kennedy's fabulous book, um, 2,200 references, and, and many of them scientific, some just about what's going on in the world today. But he, he talks about Fauci, and, he's, and Fauci's got form on this. Fauci's pushed this damn stuff. Fauci's a genocidal maniac. You know, my staff said to me, you can't say that in the public, Malcolm. I said, why can't I? Because it's not true. And I explained to them why it is true. And I'd only read a third of the book by that time. And, and I said, OK, I will just say there are elements of genocide in this. OK, they're happy with that. And then I finished the book and I said, to hell with my staff. I told them, you're wrong. He is a genocidal maniac. He's the person who's driven this around the world. He's had form in this through his, his work on, on AIDS, work on AIDS, his scam on AIDS, his fraud on AIDS, his theft on AIDS. These are the people that are destroying human lives and they're being held up as laudable. Yeah, I mean, it, it, the book is absolutely incredible. But again, I think this is something that you experienced as well. Uh, in that it's very difficult to get a hold of a physical copy. My mother-in-law ordered uh, ordered it for me for Christmas as it was uh, on my little wish list. And to date, we're now in April, four months down the line. Uh, she ordered it at the beginning of December, never turned up, never hear anything about it. I then proceeded to get both the audiobook and the PDF so that I could still go through it. Um, but it, it it's almost like we're being told not, to acknowledge or read it, but so so. If, yeah, go on. Yeah, go on. Go on. Okay, um, I just want to point out, if you don't mind, the studies on carcinogenic carcinogenicity, not done. No studies at all. Carcinogenity of these toxin of these these injections is unknown. The genotoxicity, unknown. Mutagenicity, mut mutations, unknown. Impact on next generation, unknown. Impact on fertility in males, unknown. Impact on fertility in females, unknown. Unknown whether the mRNA is even excreted in human milk down to the baby. Pregnant women, limited experience, but I'll tell you some more data on that in a minute. 
the associated use with other medicines, other vaccines, not studied. Interactions with other medicines, as I said, not studied. Effects on laboratory tests, no data available. Safety and efficacy in children younger than 12, not established. Data for use in the frail and elderly is limited. Data on the efficacy, duration of efficacy unknown, although recent studies, well, we now know, it's very, very short. It's, it's very, very poor. So Tess Laurie from Britain, who's done a lot of studies around the world, she said that a typical vaccine takes about seven years to get approval. These things, because they're new te technology that's never been used before, need about 15 years. We got this in under 12 months. So these, these, this is immoral. Our Therapeutic Goods Administration, which passed these damn things, oh, sorry, provisionally approved them, did so without any testing here, relied on Pfizer's test, which, as you know, as you know uh, showed early on, they cancelled the, the, um, the, uh, the test because they had 1,200 people die. Yeah, they, uh, they've taken they, the vaccine. Yeah, they um, one the new document uh, releases that have happened over the past two months of their how many thousands of pages that it is has shown twelve hundred people died. Uh, I think in the period uh, up to Feb after the vaccine rollout, uh, and it also within the study itself they broke up the control group by vaccinating people from the control group as well, which meant that you no longer have a solid control, which yeah. kind of links back to what you said of, hey, we're going to go for 70%, 80%, 90%, 95%. If you eliminate or you whittle down the numbers of people that could potentially be a control group uh, like uh, myself, um, then you don't really have an apt comparison to see if anything that happens further down the line is as, as a result of the injection that people were given, or if it was as a result of just happenstance. Um, I do want to uh, push you on the pregnant women section uh, because that data is also really, really shady. However, uh, I just want to pull it back a little bit to where does the QR from the vaccine passport yep. then lead to the digital ID bill? The digital, um, identity the digital ID bill? bill? Yeah. The digital identity bill is supposedly... It's called actually the Trusted Digital Identity Bill. It hasn't been introduced into the parliament yet in the sense that it hasn't been tabled in parliament as something we can discuss and vote on. But it has been introduced to the process in the sense that we've seen copies of the bill freely available, the explanatory memorandum. So we know what it's about. Now, it's actually called the Trusted Digital Identity Bill. The word trust is extremely important here because it, it alludes to the claim that what this bill is about is about making sure that our systems work properly, they're reliable, they can be trusted, and that they talk to each other. So it'll be of benefit to you and of service to you. That is the game. That's the, the talk. But underneath is a very subtle, subtle uh, means of control forming. I'll give you, uh, I'll tell you about a precursor. The... This is the way the governments are working. They're not working for the people. They're working for the globalists. You've heard of the bail-in bill. Mm -hmm. Okay, you've, you've, you've got one in Britain. The, the, the global financial crisis in 2008, the way the governments addressed that was they gave money to financial institutions in trouble as a loan. Who was the lender? You and I were as taxpayers. Yep. Yes. Yep. Not the government. 
you and I. Government is just an entity, a fictitious entity in, in some ways, but the government gave these loans and we were on the hook for them. So what they came up with next was the globalists said, let's have a bail-in where if I get into trouble as a bank, I can take your money as a depositor and I can use it to bail myself out. So it's a bail-in. Your money is coming in to bail me out. And what I'll give you in return is a worthless scrap of paper as a share certificate, which is worthless. Now, you've got two choices. You can either hang on to those certificates and hope they, that I manage my way out of this crisis as a bank and, and, the, and the share value comes back up and you'll get your money back. Or you can sell them now for they're virtually worthless. So that's a horrible dilemma. They're stealing your money, which you have put in there on the conditions that they get it back to you. So we opposed the bail-in bill. We then, we then, that was defeated. Both sides of politics came together to overwhelmingly push that through. When I got back into the Senate in 2019, I moved a, moved a, um, a motion amending that bail-in bill so that they couldn't steal deposits. We were told that was unnecessary. We lost. The Treasury then came to us and said, you're actually right in doing what you're doing. And we will fix that. Well, of course, they're not going to fix it, but we will, we've given them time. We will chase them on it. The next thing they did was they brought in the cash ban bill to ban the, the use of cash for sales of over $2,000. So if you want to buy, ca- yeah, oh yeah, that, that, that is, that, that, well, not quite. They've done this in some other countries, I believe, but this is what they tried to do in this country. We got wind of that. And in my office, we have very, very good uh, researcher and knowledgeable about the globalists. He got wind of it too. And then we galvanized the crossbench. That's the other minor parties in the Senate. And, and we got them fired up about it, and they refused to vote for it. Then we got the Labor Party, which is supposed to be the champion of workers and abandoned workers. But mm. they said, ah, we can't support that either. But then the lower house, the House of Representatives, they actually voted for it. So it came to the Senate, and it was sent off to a committee, because what also happened was that the government, the Liberal National Party, had significant dissent within their ranks, their, their, uh, their membership base and the grassroots. And so they became very embarrassed and we stirred that up as well. So uh, what happened then was after some time, it was clear that the government was very worried about bringing that into the Senate for final approval. And so we moved a motion, taking it off the books altogether and it's gone. But the digital identity bill, what it does is it starts putting all those things together and much, much more. It starts putting the technology for the QR codes so that you can use your phone for ID, and then you can get access. Now, this sounds wonderful. Um, you can get your phone for payments, but what they want to do with it is remove cash. This is their second go at removing cash. Cash is extremely important because if you don't have cash, you must use their system. Now, the Reserve Bank of Australia, our central bank, has developed a new payments platform. Every electronic transaction in our country, Sonny, goes through the new payments platform. So they're monitoring every transaction. You buy a cup of coffee, you buy a car. Every transaction goes through that. So they know what you're spending your money on. Now, what they're saying in this digital identity bill, they say it in a very convoluted way, but basically they're saying the government can sell your data to a corporation. 
including a foreign corporation. They don't have to look after your data with the same privacy restrictions that apply to the laws in our country. But get this, they can sell your, they can force you to pay for access to your health data. So they're creating a monopoly there. They're also saying, so they're giving people freedom to, they're giving corporations freedom to access your data, do whatever they want with their data, excuse me, charge you for use of, of your own data. They wanting to then monitor every single thing about you. You spent a cup of coffee, you spent uh, $2 on a cup of coffee last week. How come you weren't at work? You were supposed to be at work at that time. We know what you're doing on social media. Uh, we, we don't like the food you eat. You eat far too much meat. We know that they, it's a complete lie, but they say that meat causes, is requires cattle, which, which fart and burp carbon dioxide. And so that's causing global warming. So, Sonny, if, if you want a house loan, you'll cut back on your consumption of red meat. And when you've got it down to a certain level, we'll tell you you can have a house loan. Oh, by the way, that four-wheel drive you drive? No, no more. Because that, that goes against our rules too. And, and by the way, you, your house is too big. You need to get to a smaller house. And so that's the way they will control everyone. And it's quite clear that, that that's what they intend to do. And what they want to do is to get everyone on codes, QR codes, just and, and have a, a digital identity so that we can track you, so that we can force you into compliance with whatever we want. And then... We're seeing this in China already, social credit system. That social credit system says much what I just said. If you, if you say something wrong on social media, if you go against the government, if you go against what we're mandating, then we will take some of your privileges away from you. And then we will say social credit, Sonny, I'll give you $50,000 a year, guaranteed income, call a living wage. And you think, oh, that's not bad. It's less than I'm making, but you know, I don't have to work for that. Okay, I'll sign up for that. And then after that, they start saying, Sonny, that car that you bought last, last year, get rid of it because we want you to pedal to work. What happens if I don't? We'll cut your wage to 40000 because you're now dependent. What the whole thing is about, Sonny, is about returning to feudalism where someone controlled your existence, gave you. They basically want us to be serfs and to, and, and to be slaves. That, mm. That's the digital identity bill in a nutshell. In a nutshell. Um, I yeah. think I've covered most of the points. Yeah, and it's it's amazing uh, just how willing and pliable we've become to be able to almost readily accept this and no one bats an eye at the idea of, oh, yeah, it's just a digital currency. Oh, yeah, uh, I, I pay for everything on my card anyway or I pay for everything on my phone. There's There's no issue with this. People are failing to see, like you say, um where that goes to and where that leads to in terms of people having access to your data, in terms of people having access to all of your movements, in terms of people then being able to dictate what you can and can't do. It's this idea that what's happening in China with the social credit system is just going to happen in China. It's never going to come this way. It's never going to come to Australia. It's never going to come to Europe. It's never going to go to the US. But when you look at what the US Treasury are talking about with a digital currency. When you look at what the Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, is looking at doing in the UK with a digital currency, when you look at what they're doing in the EU, where they're already bringing out a digital ID system uh, across the whole of the EU, and they're planning to do this this summer um, to at least get an identity kind of thing out there, and also discussing with the European Bank this idea of a digital currency, it's phenomenal to see that 
no one is really picking up on it en masse. It, it's something that it, I hesitate to use the word, but it's more of a fringe thing that you might say or talk about. But something that you've said a few times now is the globalists. Who are the globalists and why should we be concerned there? Before I get onto that, and I'm happy to talk about that. When you, if, if you're a mouse, the cheese in a mousetrap looks like it's free until you touch it. Hmm. Then it costs you your life. That's what they're doing with these things. They're giving you things that you think are free or think that are even beneficial. And then they take away your life. And that's what they're doing. But they don't want you dead. Well, <laughs> looking at this, these injections, mm. they might. <laughs> yeah. But they certainly want control over you. And they certainly want you to work for virtually nothing and just be a surf again. They want to take us back to feudalism. Now, these things are not crazy. They like to make out you're crazy. They'll call you a conspiracy theorist or a tinfoil hat wearer. That's, that's another tactic to shut down debate. That's another tactic to shut down dissent. So what happens with these, if you look at Maurice uh, Strong, he died in 2015 and uh, November, December 2015. He is the grandfather of global warming. He is the creator of climate change. He, is an ama he was an amazing intellect, an amazing networker, extremely competent networker. He, hijacked, he created the United Nations Environmental Program. Well, had, first of all, he, he, he was a Canadian billionaire who made money out of oil, right? So that's where he came from. But when he was 25, he was already fabulously wealthy. And let's step back a bit. When he was 17, he was working as an intern at the United Nations. The United Nations was very, very new in its infancy. When he came back, this, is, these, this, this story comes from the Canadian Broadcasting Service. Um, he, someone asked him, what did you think about, what are your impressions about the United Nations? And he said, that place is going to be extremely powerful one day. Sonny, what kind of 17 year old thinks like that? That's incredible. I, when yeah. I was 17, so, I was thinking about my next car. <laughs> so so go on eight years he's 25 he's a billionaire he runs an oil company and he says right i'll put someone in charge of that because i want to go and work for canada's richest family wealthiest family because they're connected to both sides of politics so this guy wants to get connections this guy then in 1970 realizes that the the environment has got a few problems in it due to mankind and, and the beauty of humans is that we, we sometimes do things before we think things through. Okay, that, that's a beauty. It's also a legacy, a, a hindrance, handicap for us. But we made some environmental problems. But the significant thing was that humans said, we don't like that and we will clean it up and we'll stop it happening again in the future because we care. And what he did was he commissioned a report. He commissioned a report into the state of the world's environment. And it was all doom and gloom and terrible catastrophe and all the rest of it. So then he lobbied the United Nations and he formed the United Nations, formed the United Nations Environmental Program. And remember that, that the United Nations was supposedly concerned with global peace and, and uh, 
global harmony and global famines prevention and and so on the environment was a new area in the 70s so he was he created the united nations environmental program on a bug on a report that exaggerated then guess who became the first secretary general of the united nations environmental program marie strong now marie strong is then the only person who is is, is thought to be aware or not aware knowledgeable about the environment because all the rest of academics and bureaucrats failed politicians and hacks and they just do what they're told none of them have been elected they've all been appointed and and so morris strong is sitting up there right under the secretary general but he then starts dictating policy for the united nations and then he starts he starts making all kinds of claims about global warming and so they create the united nations framework convention on climate change they create the united nations in, uh, intergovernmental panel on climate change and so these organizations fabricated the science and they created this global warming scare now morris strong he's he is one of the globalists he's more of a, was more of a globalist tool but he said he had two aims one is to deindustrialize western society incredible we 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 came for for millennia we scratched around in the dirt eked out a, eked out a, a, a basic living for our, for our family we died early we died unhealthy we were plagued with disease we had miserable lives uncomfortable lives unsafe lives health was a problem disease ravaged us famines ravaged us nature had a storm we were dead nature had a flood we were dead that was the way we lived and then in the space of 170 years we went from the start of the industrial revolution to having these things and having incredible freedom the british abolished slavery why because they became more prosperous slavery is a dead end it's it's a it's it, it's very harmful for your whole economy so what happened was these these globalists the predecessors of the globalists were in charge of the major banks in europe the major banks was were privately the major central banks were privately owned central banks the bank of england was privately owned formed in 1694 the globalists controlled them they controlled the the governments because they controlled the issuing of currency this is what they operate on and all of a sudden they had the industrial revolution instead of having serfs running around the, the joint slaves uh, slaves for them they had people free and they had enormous development because as i said humans care but in addition humans have got this neocortex very creative and so sunny i might come up with a wonderful idea and you go wow that's impressive but if you fine tune it you can do something remarkably better and so that's because we have an exchange of ideas we can operate on that level animals can and then someone else comes along and says sunny i love your idea i'm going to make something out of that and i'll satisfy the un unmet needs of people and that entrepreneur makes a staggering amount of money well, he might make a staggering amount of money, but it makes people's lives easier. So we've got higher productivity, which means higher wealth and higher standards of living for everyone. And so that's what happened. And people were free and they took off and the globalists lost control. So the globalists are fighting to get back control because they love their cushy jobs, doing nothing and raking in the money, living off people's back. So in 1913, they formed, I could go on here for a long time, but 1913, they formed the Federal Reserve Bank of America. That was their third attempt. They had two previous attempts. They, they wrecked both of them. The Federal Reserve Bank, uh, you would know of Ron Paul. Ron Paul, highly, highly, um, highly intelligent, 
very concerned about peace, very strong advocate for peace, very strong advocate for small government because he knows governments get control, very uh, strong opponent who held this uh, of the Federal Reserve Bank, who held the bank accountable. No one else held the bank accountable. So um, Ron Paul wrote a fabulous book called End the Fed, the Federal Reserve Bank, End the Fed. And in it, he says, Every major recession since 1913 has been created by the Federal Reserve Bank. They do that by, by, by um, controlling the money, money supply, flating it and then, then contracting it, causing collapses and people then lose their assets. And who gets the assets? The globalists. Um, he said every major war since 1913 was created by the Federal Reserve Bank as a consequence. So these are the things that happen. Now, the major globalists now, companies like BlackRock, Vanguard, and there's state something, I've forgotten what that is. These companies own the vast majority of most of the large companies in the world. They shift capital around the world to get advantage of cheap labor. They control governments. Our country, the multinational corporations own 90% of our large companies. They pay almost no tax. They pay no company tax, many of them. They use our resources, use our education system, use our defense system, use our transport infrastructure, our water infrastructure, use our economy. They don't pay a cent in tax. They go around the world dodging tax. Chevron is the largest tax avoider in the, in the world. And it takes our, natural, our uh, LPG gas from the northwest shelf of Australia, exports it all over the world and pays not a cent in tax. They use our resources. These globalists are, are all-consuming monsters that just feed off us. They exploit us. And what they want now is they want us back in our feudal setup, back as serfs, pay us just a meager amount, and then control what we do. And what the United Nations is doing is through the 19... The United Nations was set up by the globalists. Um, it's, it's front, and the World Economic Forum is similar. Its front is to push peace, industrial harmony, the environment. But what they're really doing is controlling. And in 19, 1992, Maurice Strong, there's that name again, he led the Rio Declaration, the Rio Summit, and that was about creating a 21st century global governance. It was called Agenda 21, 21st century global governance, unelected, basically a dictatorship. But without tanks and guns over you, it was ignorance and fear of climate. And so what they wanted to do, and they've done this in many countries around the world, they've, they've gone out and they've got three legs of that, biodiversity. So what they're saying there, Sonny, is see that, um, that fungus in your backyard, those, those ants in your backyard, that snake in your backyard, that's now protected species. So I'm sorry, you can't use your backyard anymore. They've just taken your, your land rights. Then the second thing they want to do is they want to control what you eat how you live, where you live, when you do things, how much electricity you use. They want to micromanage your life. And they're, they're putting in place systems to do that. That's called sustainability. And they say, the way you're living, Sonny, is unsustainable. They, they say sustainability comes by doing these things that we're putting in our regulation. And your country adopts our regulations and they become law. And those things, Sonny, are not sustainable without subsidies. They're not sustainable at all but they're told, we're told it's sustainable. And then the third thing they put in place is climate change. The suddenly the, the carbon dioxide coming out of your exhaust car exhaust pipe is, well, the reality, Sonny, is that it's, it's nature's trace, atmospheric, colorless, odorless, tasteless gas that's essential for all life on this planet. What they're telling us is that it's a pollutant 
needs to be regulated because what they really want to get at is your use of coal, oil, gas, because they know the whole world runs on that. Our whole standard of living is based on that. So they want to get a tax on that to fund the United Nations revenue. So the United Nations then will have a revenue source. It can be global governance. But the way they're putting in place is they're saying your carbon dioxide out of your car in the Netherlands is affecting the people in Peru. So we've got to put a tax on your car exhaust so that you use less of it. They know that you will keep using your car. They know that most of us will keep using coal, oil and gas. We'll just pay more tax for it. So they're looking for a revenue source. And they're also, if you'll notice what they've done, they have put in place things like the Paris Agreement. Now, the Paris Agreement itself is not an agreement because at the previous Copenhagen meeting in 2012, yeah, 2010 maybe, um, they failed to get agreement. It's very embarrassing. So at Paris, what they did was the leaders all flew in, had their pomp and ceremony, and then the bureaucrats tried to hammer out an agreement. China said, go to hell. We're not doing anything until 2030 at the earliest. India said much the same. Our dopey government in Australia said, we're going to castrate our economy, choke our economy, and we will put in place these regulations. That's compliance with the Paris Agreement. What the hell are they doing making an agreement that wrecks our economy? What the hell have they got making any agreement for foreigners? You see what I mean? So that's how they put in place a global governance. And then we have people like uh, our previous finance minister becomes the, the head of the OECD. And we paid... $4,000 a day to keep that man on his junket going around Europe to, to lobby for the OECD job. Our Water Act in uh, 2007 was put in place by a supposedly conservative prime minister, sold water rights. Now we have foreign corporations owning the water that used to go to the farmers. If you, if you control the water, you control. So they're now looking at control for water, control for energy, Stealing our property rights, literally stolen farmers' property rights. Farmers can't get permission to use their own land that they bought uh, for farming. They're looking at controlling everything you do, the amount of food we eat. We have our government, which is supposed to look after farmers. It's come from the farming sector, the National Party. We're a big beef exporter. We're the second biggest in the world, I think. Our beef is fantastic quality, much in demand. The government is spending $64 million dollars to the, giving it to the United Nations to fund an anti-beef campaign where they want to stop you eating beef. And I'm serious. It's, it's laughable, but it's serious. They want to stop you eating beef. They want to bring it down to a teaspoon of beef a day, 14 grams. And they want us to wait for this. They want us to eat bugs instead because they can control the, the production of bugs much more easily. So, I mean, this is when they want to control the food you eat, they want to tax the air you breathe. We're in deep trouble. And what they're trying to do is to make us put on a digital identity bill so that we just comply with everything. Yeah. And for anyone that is questioning anything that Malcolm is saying, one thing I suggest you, uh, you could look at is the credit cards that are uh, being made that link to your carbon usage. Because one of the other parts of it, uh, as you've uh, mentioned already with the whole carbon dioxide thing, is... Uh, they're also looking to introduce a carbon credit system. So regardless of how much money you've got in the bank, if you've got, let's say, a thousand bucks in the bank, if you go over your carbon credits, even if you've got 50 bucks or 100 bucks left in the bank, you're no longer able to use your card because your carbon credits are all run out. So this links back into that social credit system with the QR code, with the digital ID. And this all links together 
in a really insidious, sinister um, way of control that, as you rightly mentioned, isn't necessarily pushed out by our politicians uh, in our faces, but is coming down from almost a higher power where it's being dropped onto the politicians of these are the things that we want you guys to implement. Okay, we're going to implement higher taxes on fossil fuel usage. And not only does that make me and you pay more, but there are also going to be people who can no longer afford it, which pushes those people into a level of poverty, which pushes those people into a situation where they're more likely to comply with this, um, as the example you gave, 50,000 a year social credit kind of system, uh, which pushes compliance further. So it's all very interlinked. Um, and I think um, it's... <sighs> It's hard to wrap your mind around at times, but it's all there in black and white. If you look at the UN documents, if you look at the WHO documents, or if you look at the World Economic Forum documents, which unfortunately we've not touched on just yet, but um, I'm going to have to uh, wrap things up. Um, Malcolm, if there's anything that you think people should be more aware of or looking at or looking into, what would you say it is at this point in time? Because people's attention has been shifted from COVID over to Ukraine at the moment. Again, something unfortunately we've not had the time to, to cover. But where would you say people should shift their focus at this point in time to really get a grasp of what's going on? Need, need to stop and, and really think. People should stop and think. People should talk more, listen to independent news, not the legacy news. We don't buy the globalists, pushing a globalist narrative. I mean, Ukraine is a classic example. We have heard nothing from the mainstream media, the legacy media, but anti-Putin stuff. Nothing about the other side, nothing at all. So we just need to stop and question. So I would say the one thing we need to do is to question, Sonny, question everything um, and try to stop and think and realize that we might be caught up in it. So even if we question, we might not be asking the right questions. Talk more and really listen to people. Uh, Follow the independent news like yourself. Um, question. And then go in and vote for anything other than the two minor, two major parties. Because in, in America, it's the Democrats and the Republicans. The Democrats have completely taken over by the globalists. They're pushing the globalist agenda completely. George Soros owns the Democrat Party, some, some people say. The Republicans have been infiltrated by the World Economic Forum. The World Economic Forum... All around the world, we've got graduates from the World Economic Forum Young Leaders Program. Our health minister, who was also covering the pushing the climate scam, who was also covering up for the, the Bureau of Meteorology's distortion of the Bureau of Temperature Records, fabricating global warming uh, where it doesn't exist. He's He was uh, director of strategy for the World Economic Forum from 2000 and 2001. And then he comes down here and, he, and he's the one who's, inject, who's, who's developed who's in, uh, developed the vaccine mandates, basically, sorry, enabled the vaccine mandates. He's the pushing the, the COVID scare. The, man, the man's behaviour is inhuman. And he's such a mild-mannered, meek-looking sort of person. I've met him. He, he's got no spine to him, no strength to him. He's just a tool, in my opinion, of the, for the globalists. So that's what we see. We see Macron is a graduate of the World Economic Forum. We see... Trudeau. Um, 
Trudeau, we see Ardern, we see Merkel. There's Johnson. someone else missing as well. Johnson, Johnson, sorry. Yeah, yes. And they all say the same thing at the same time. Build back better. The Great Reset. UN Agenda 21 became UN Agenda 2030. They've all got these same goals. They're puppets. So I ask people to just question, question, question. Think outside the box. Think about what's really happening. And then vote for anyone other than the Tories and the Labour Party and the Liberal Party. I, I, in, in, in the United Kingdom, I would have no hesitation voting for UKIP. That, that's who I'd go vote for. If, but they probably don't exist. Uh, the, the, the more I learn about the um, effects that the media has had, the more I realise my views on UKIP are so um, one-sided. Now, there are still things that I disagree with in their overall vision, but at the same time, what was pushed out by the media was much like what we're seeing with the Putin situation or with the COVID situation was just one side to discredit and um, uh, smear anything that was in opposition. But, um, but Malcolm, thank you. So I, I, I guess much. one piece of advice yeah. question, but do the opposite of what the media is telling you. That's also a good one, actually. Yeah, yeah. especially when it comes to the treatment of uh, COVID. <laughs> but uh, Malcolm, thank you very much for your time. Really, really appreciate it and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you very much. And it's, a, it's been a pleasure because we've got to keep going with this independent news. <laughs>